This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. All right, Jason and I are back to preview UFC 273. This is an absolutely stacked main card. In the main event, we have Alexander Volkanovsky defending his featherweight title against the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. In the co-main, we have the bantamweight unification bout between champion Aljamain Sterling versus interim champion Peter Yan in what is the most competitive division in MMA. Then we have Gilbert Burns versus the much-hyped Kamzat Shimaev in a welterweight bout that has important implications for the rankings. So let's start with the background for the main event, Volkanovski versus Zombie. Zombie is finishing his camp at Fight Ready with Henry Cejudo, which is becoming a top spot for many fighters to finish out their camps. Zombie mostly trains in Korea, then would go to the MMA lab, but this time he's going to Fight Ready. However, he's still with his American striking coach, Eddie Cha. Since returning to the UFC, Zombie has had four big wins, but also two losses. What strikes me about his losses is that he lost to switch stance fighters, Brian Ortega and Yair Rodriguez. This is also Zombie's second shot at the title, the first time being against Jose Aldo, where he lost due to dislocated shoulder. Volkanovski, on the other hand, does really well against switch stance fighters. So in a way, I think Zombie stylistically might be a tougher matchup than Ortega, except not nearly as durable nor as young. And as far as Volkanovski, he has not lost in the octagon. His only loss is back in 2013. Now, this being probably Zombie's last chance at the title, he has one advantage over Volkanovski, which is to save nothing for the rest of his fight career. I think he goes into this not thinking about defenses, but just being able to win this belt even just once. So he doesn't need to beat Volkanovski in a rematch. He just needs to beat him once and have the fight of his life. I think this is why he went to fight ready as they are really good at game planning and tape study. Jason, what can Zombie and team do to beat Volkanovski? Oh, I'd be interested to see what they come up with, but like... Alexander Volkanovsky is a, a tough egg to crack. I mean, he he does so many little things well, and uh, the term that I keep hearing used on on Volkanovsky is his layered offense. Um, the first thing I would want to see Zombie do is clean up his defense. He's incredibly tough, but he's entirely too hittable. So he needs to diversify a little bit and not be. Um, you know, not be so so eager to entertain and be there to be hit because Volkanovski still punches like a guy that weighed 200 some pounds or whatever he weighed at one. A a greater commitment to defense, but at the same time, you have to score on Volkanovski, or like eventually he's just gonna he's just gonna pick you apart. You know, kicks, punches, it doesn't matter. Um, or double legs, he'll mix it in. So you have to be. Uh, you got to be defensively responsible. You can't be there to to be hit. You're going to have to try to mix it up as much as possible. And I just don't know if at 35, uh, Zombie has that in him. 
but I think Fight Ready does some interesting interesting stuff. Um, and their their attention to conditioning, game planning. Um, I think if you're going to go anywhere to try to to add a little more nuance to what it is you do as a fighter at age 35, I mean, I think that's probably the best choice he could have made. Um, and I like that he kept the consistency of his striking coach also. I think that's going to be really, really important because if you try to reinvent the wheel too much, then, you know, now you just get a shitty wheel. And I think you need a little bit of consistency given that, you know, what, what, uh, what Korean zombie does well is he punches, he, he will walk you down. Um, he, he creates good pressure situations. He finds that uppercut to throw that sometimes a slappy hook to set up the uppercut or sometimes that, Left hook will, will rock you enough that he can just put that uppercut right behind it, and uh, I'd be eager to see what they what they put together for Volk in this one. Now you mentioned layered offense. What do you mean by that? Like he just doesn't throw. Um, he doesn't just start with one jab and then one two, and then he he's his hands are moving, his body and his feet are moving, and it's not random movement. It's all built on setting something up bigger and better things and getting you to react a certain way. And whenever you, and he's not looking for a specific reaction, he's willing to take what's available based on that reaction. So if, you know, if, if you start to overreact with, um, with, with a parry, he'll come over the top of it. If you start to, um, high guard everything, he'll come with a nice kick, you know, it'll, get you reacting high and then going low. And then he's, you know, he, the only reason I hear some people say that Volkanovski is hittable and not super durable, but that's only because he's so offensive. And you know, so there's going to be some, a little bit of give and take in that. But for a guy that is as offensive as he is, he doesn't get in all that much trouble against uh, some really tough competitors at 145 pounds. It's a tough, tough weight class. And he's been in there with, you know, um, uh, Max is outstanding, uh, and those fights were ridiculously close and ridiculously entertaining. And then you had T City. Um, the, those fights are just they're they're candy for fight analysis. They just absolutely are. So, um, you know that's that's what I think when I think of Volkanovski's layered attack. Everything is building towards something, and there's. Whatever reaction you give him, he's got something processed and ready for it. So then how do you think Volkanovsky stylistically matches up against Zombie? Do you think this layered offense is tailor-made to beat Zombie? Or do you think Volkanovsky's style could have some problems against Zombie? Especially because Zombie is good at counters. Zombie is good at counters, but he's entirely too hittable. And um, I'd like to see Zombie have a little bit more uh, faints in the ability to draw out counter punches so that he can respond with his own counters. He, he comes heavy with a uh, first ball fastball a lot. And I'd like to see him be a little bit more measured and trying to draw something out. The thing about uh, Korean zombie is he, he hits stuff that he doesn't set up, which tells you that his timing and his ability to, to react when he sees Things even against guys that are real herky jerky and problematic from a movement perspective, like Frankie Edgar, he was able to touch him whenever he wanted. 
but a 700-year-old Frank Yeager isn't uh, a 33-year-old Alexander Volkanovsky. Ortega gave Zombie a lot of problems with his variety and stance switches. Volkanovsky probably presents even more variety and is better at stance switches and is probably even more defensively sound from both stances. So what kind of challenge do you think this presents for Zombie? Well, I think you just said it. Because he's so much more defensively sound from both sides, and he has very good offense to where if you were watching it for the first time, you wouldn't. it would take a seasoned uh, analyst to say what, what you think he, he is naturally, right? You're lefty because he doesn't give up a lot defensively whenever he switches to the southpaw position. And I, I think that's going to be the biggest problem for KZ is the, the ability to be simultaneously offensive as hell and still be disciplined defensively. So I don't want to say that I don't, I don't give Korean Zombie much of a, a chance. I just give him less of a chance at 35. And I know there's only two years difference between them. But in a weight class like 145 pounds, I think those two years really start to mean something. The Yair Rodriguez fight, like you said, posed some problems for KZ. And I think that the, the ability to, to fight out of both stances, to set almost everything he throws up, he throws, he sets up everything, Volkanowski does, um, doesn't, it, it isn't going to allow KZ to settle. And if he's not settled, he's going to have problems finding those big shots that and when he does, it's, it's fun to watch. But I don't, I, I I have a tough time seeing it against uh, against Volk. One thing I noticed about Ortega is early on, Ortega figured out, hey, there's certain stances, there's certain shots Korean Zombie can't see coming. Especially because Ortega can fight out of both sides, he realized, oh, he's kind of susceptible if I attack him from this side, right? And I feel like Volkanovsky will hone in on that even sooner. I can't imagine him not figuring out, hey, Zombie has some blind spots here where if I hit him from, you know, whatever it is, whatever the shot is, he's going to figure out very early and then just use that to exploit Zombie. That's what I think, too. And it's Volkanowski's ability to his throwaway shots, his decoy shots, his hand traps, um, little feints. He'll punch off the parry. Um, You know, he'll he'll reach high and and then go low. He'll reach high and then go go low with the right hand. The body will go reach high and he'll go with a right kick low he, he switches things up that and it doesn't allow you to settle and then he'll shift you know shift his stance and then he'll just shift out of that stance switch just to get you thinking and reacting and while you're thinking and reacting he's exploding on you with a right hand that's sending you to the other side of the cage or just putting you on your ass so um the the lack of and i don't want to say defensive responsibility because casey is such an offensive fighter that that's helped make him the fighter that he is. But in terms of stylistic matchups, I think Volkanovski eats up that kind of style if Fight Ready doesn't add a new wrinkle and some sound game planning to um, to this camp. And I think when Zombie gets frustrated where he can't tell what's coming, he's going to start to brawl. I think that's what lost him the fight against Yair Rodriguez, where even though he was winning, Yair was making him second guess what was coming. And I think Zombie's instinct is, if I don't know what's coming, if I can't see what's coming, I'm just going to go in a brawl. And that cost him. And I can't imagine him not doing that against Volkanovsky, who is already very deceptive with his strikes. And I think because of wear and tear, I think 
zombie can't see the shots coming as well as he used to. I don't think he can react to them as quickly as he used to. On top of that, he was never a great defensive fighter. So I think that might lead him to get frustrated and try to brawl with Volkanovsky, which maybe he catches him off guard. And, you know, that's the thing about brawling, right? It's kind of a, a, a suicide mission where maybe you win or maybe you die. Yeah, right. But you always hear people say that so and so is a puncher's chance, even if they're like not a great striker. But conversely, you don't ever hear anyone who's just a terrible grappler having like a guillotine chance. Like it's a, a punching can be a hell of an equalizer, and KC can punch. But I think you made you to your point, and it's an excellent one. Is the punches that he doesn't necessarily see coming, and it when we talk about a layered attack, decoy shots, and just hand checking and hand fighting and getting you looking different ways is what Volkanovski does so well. And he even did that well against uh, Max Holloway. And Max Holloway is one of the most complete fighters in uh, both an offensive and defensive uh, perspective. And it, it has to do with some of the tools that in length and some of the tools that, uh, that Holloway has, but um, Volkanovski is able to figure that shit out on the fly. And he's really, really good at it. And I think he's going to be able to do that against KZ with relative ease, unless he runs into something, which I, I almost hope. And, I, and look, I love uh, Volkanovski. I really do. But I almost hope he runs into something early to make this more of a competitive fight because I love watching KZ fight too. So, you know, but the only way I see it being that competitive is if um, Volkanovski gets rocked early and has to sort of, sort of like recomport himself and, and, position himself to get back in it and around and then maybe um, start to walk away with it round three or four a note to our loyal listeners if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon this will give you access to exclusive bonus content as well as our private chat group on discord Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now let's talk about the Bantamweight title fight between Sterling and Jan. They've already fought once, so we already have an idea what this might look like. But Sterling is saying he went into that last fight compromised with injuries, especially a bad neck. Jan had that illegal blow, but other than that, was winning the fight. I can't imagine Jan doing anything this time to jeopardize his title. Now, Jan is also similar to his training partner, Volkanovski, in that they do really well against switch stance fighters, but also they are good at honing in on where you're bad defensively. And against switch stance fighters, Jan is really good at waiting for those moments where his opponent switches stances and then attacking there where they're defensively the most compromised. Sterling is a switch stance fighter and used that to his advantage in round one in their first fight, albeit at a pace no human could keep up. I think that constant switching stances and constantly striking from both sides is part of why he started falling apart on top of Jan starting to figure him out. So because Jan is the odds-on betting favorite, what can Sterling do different in this fight? Uh, I'm going to go against convention here and say not switch stances so much because he's absolutely abysmal defensively from the left-handed stance, which is fucking terrible. Um, and though he has some some good offensive output, so, 
So here's what I'll say. I'll go against the grain a little bit in this. Um, I don't think Aljo looked great in the first round of their fight in 259. <laughs> I think it's relative, right? In hindsight, you remember it as being good because he looked so bad in the other rounds. But to your point, I watched it again and I was like, wait a minute, he did a lot worse in round one than I remembered. I thought he did really well in round one, but in relative terms, he did compared to his other rounds, but he still didn't do that good. No, not not do it. And I saw arguments on Twitter that he easily won round one. No, he didn't. The knees he threw uh, were probably what I what I would say most impressed me. Like he did find some knees that were that were that were good. He switched it up uh, creatively, and he looked pretty smooth while doing it sometimes. But even though he was scoring and throwing volume and diversity, uh, it just looked to me it looked a little bit stiff. And then, like I said. Very early on, it, eventually he's going to be really easy to hit because the only thing keeping keeping Jan at bay is like the spammy volume and the length of Aljo. Um, you know, I think because of some Aljo's length, volume, and awkwardness, Jan was just missing. But you know, Aljo looked to slow down a little bit. I'd say as early as midway through the first round, and even though it looked like he was more comfortable than usual in the pocket. I think we got to give Jan some credit for being patient and drawing out that sense of confidence so that he could eventually, as he did, just sit Aljo on his ass with a straight right hand. You know, and Aljo's reaction alone to this that little decoy left or whatever you want to call it right before Jan dropped him with that right hand was a real concern for me for Aljo's boxing instincts. He literally like dropped his left hand, raised his chin, in like this awkward, piss poor version of the Philly shell, while a straight right hand just came right downtown, boom, right in the chin, and just dropped him. All those switches and shifts from Aljo is going to get him fucking hurt this time around. Now he he does it and he does it randomly and on center line, and I got a lot of concern for Aljo because uh, all of Jan's near misses and even the big kicks and other shots that Aljo was landing. Had him falling all over the place. And those were the better rounds that Aljo had. So here's the last thing I'll say, because I don't want this to seem like like I'm really shitting on Aljo, because his, if he takes his back, he might be able to end this in round one, just like he did against Sanhagen. But I don't like how, how square Aljo's shoulders and chest get, which is really strange to me, given how staggered and wide uh, Sterling's stance is. Like his legs are far apart in like a sugarfoot stance. But it's for his chest and shoulders to be so awkward, or excuse, to be so, so, so square is awkward as fuck, man. It really is. Oh, I don't know if, if you noticed that, but it's like you don't have now all of a sudden both arms are equal length and you're incredibly hittable. And Jan was starting to pick that up throughout the fight. And Jan's strength, wrestling defense, striking defense, setups, reads, like those are all things that. You know, short of Aljo backpacking him, I think we're going to see a very similar version of what we saw last time, regardless of the neck injury or not. I had the same surgery that that Aljo had. I have I have cervical disc replacement at C five six, and um, I got two fights in after that, and that's all I could do. Now I got some left side of my body weakness and some peripheral nerve damage and other things going on. So it's not a surgery you could just bounce back and you're hundred percent again. No, and even if you do have days where you're 100%, 100% that 
that area, I mean, there's, there's scar tissue, there's additional swelling, there's how your body responds to dehydration in an area that was now has um, the connective tissue removed. And if you do have a bout of inflammation that tends to go to that area, that's why I mostly quit drinking because anytime I would have more than three beers, I would get the world's worst headache right where I had my neck surgery, right through my neck. Yeah, so I'd get a greater degree of inflammation. And not like everybody's different. I'm not saying that's that's going to happen to Aljo. But to think that, oh, you have that surgery and that there's not a greater need for anti-inflammatories or at least an inflammatory consideration is fucking crazy. <laughs> Everyone asks, oh, he's great now. He's going to be fine. I hope he is because I wouldn't wish that kind of pain and discomfort. And you've had neck in- injuries and neck issues. You know how it is. I hope. For like team bad neck, like I hope Aljo absolutely beats the shit out of y'all. Like that, I just from a technical and analytical perspective, I don't necessarily see it. And you know, or maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the 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 some of the the deficiencies I saw in rewatching their fight multiple times was uh, me nitpicking a little bit, and um, maybe it's true that Aljo was pretty badly compromised and that's why he sort of fell apart in there but my guess is that that whether i want to see him fail or not Jan is the real deal to your point about his stance where he gets real squared up i felt like he was doing that to reach with both hands like a zombie to either just grab both wrists and just start hand fighting like that which isn't smart against peter Jan, because then that's when you're going to get popped which is what happened a lot but also i think he was anticipating like i think he was partially doing that because jan has this high guard so he's like oh his hand is up so i can't get punched so i'm safe so he's already like turning his shoulder so his rear hand is closer to landing the shot right and he's just waiting for him to drop his hands so he could just pop him one and you can't do that against jan so i think part of that is just like he's a high level fighter so i can't call it beginner stuff but it's stuff like you see in sparring where you have somebody up against the cage and you're hitting your opponent with some light shots to get their hands up and then you start kind of squaring up i know exactly what you're saying and you're right you're spot on he's he he was approaching it with the confidence of him sort of like playing with his food a little bit with like he's working with a guy with a guy who isn't Piotr yawn in front of him and but you have yawn who's a fucking world beater he is a killer amongst killers and you gotta, you gotta know that, and, and maybe it was to, to to frustrate him, but he was. I mean, watch that first round again and watch it very closely. Jan was just being very patient, and he wasn't frustrated when he was just barely missing. And when Aljo was missing, even just barely, he would put so much into it, and his feet were so out of position much of the time that he was started to, to fall and flail. And to, to me, Jan, even though he, some people say he lost that first round. I don't think so. Someone throws 80 punches that doesn't that don't do a thing and Jan throws 22 or whatever he threw and sets Aljo on his ass and then like takes him down off a few kick catches and gets up with relative ease tells me that you know he's just processing the information of what Aljo does best and having really seemingly no concern for it whatsoever. So I'm not sure how you watch that with the sound off. And even with the sound on, I don't see giving that first round to, to Sterling. I just don't. 
it seems like Sterling has created a habit where in the gym, he's the best guy. And anybody he spars against that's his size, he beats them up. So he's used to striking against somebody who's cowering against him. And those are things that you do when your opponent is cowering. And it's like, Jan wasn't cowering. He was waiting. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll be honest with you. You're right. You're right. Because um, I tra- I coached at, at Longos for over a year, and they're one of the worst defensive teams I've ever seen that is that successful at a high level. Their offense is really, really good, but defen- defensively, not so much. And Alger looked like he was trying to fight a guy, or he was comfortable doing things that he was able to get away with against individuals who are not strong defensive fighters. And I think that might have been the case. But Jan is an excellent defensive fighter. Just look at the volume and the diversity of strikes that Aljo threw. And look look how easily Jan either parried or, or slipped or protected either high guard or even shots to the body. And then whenever at whenever Aljo would get done with those those strikes, Jan would reset and catch him with a kick to the body. <laughs> just just throw one. Then you just would see Aljo start to start to fade a little bit or start to flinch a little bit where Jan wasn't. So the things you can get away with if you have a defensively negligent team, try to pull that shit against Jan, he's gonna hurt you. So Jan being the odds on favorite, how does he beat Sterling? You're gonna catch him with right hands. Um, he's gonna he's gonna stay calm. My 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 question is: Do does Ray Longo and Aljo come at Yawn with the same? Oh, we were having success with volume. Do they buy into that narrative? I mean, they were there. They really did it. They were part of it. Ray listened to Aljo breathe so heavily in that second round and knew that he got dropped and hurt in that first round, do they really believe he was arguably up two rounds to none? Because that's fucking silliness. They they have to know better. But if they do come out in that same manner with that kind of volume, you're going to see Jan be patient again. He's going to lull him in. He's going to lull Aljo into a false sense of confidence in the pocket, and he's going to crush him with a fucking right hand. Like he's just going to. And then you're going to see um, either an early victory or you're just going to see a systematic dismantling of Aljo over over five rounds. If Aljo comes in and mixes some things up, does a little bit of like high volume for a little bit, Aljo had great strike selection. He didn't have natural natural striking reaction, but in that first round, he had great strike selection to the point where I would say his his instincts to throw those knees were all built off of his setups. That's good fighting, but he just doesn't have what I would call natural striking reactions. Um, and you know whether that's from his wrestling background or or whatever it is, um, like to be there too long with a guy like Jan in front of you is a bad idea. So you got you to switch some of that stuff up. Um, the shots that, that Jan was just missing against Aljo, those are going to find a home in that first round. The ones that were just missing, just, lit, just falling short. If Aljo comes at him with the same shit, then 
Jan's going to process it and he's going to pick them apart. It does make me think about Chris Weidman, who's also from the same camp where you saw as he was getting older, he couldn't maintain that same high volume style that he started his career out with. And despite that, they never adjusted. They still had him fight that same way. And then, you know, the second half of his career, he would just start gassing out after the first round. And he would still try to maintain that pace, but that wasn't working for him, right? So to your question about would Ray Longo's team have Sterling come out trying to do the same thing, that high volume thing, I feel like probably because that's what they always do. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone's ever tried really hard to punch very well and a lot after they've wrestled a shitload. It's very hard to do. And we're talking about uh, uh, one that is a precision-based, reactive, less anaerobic system in, in striking versus like a more of a gross motor movement and, and a more anaerobic energy system in, in wrestling. And then, you know, it's like, try to, try to thread a needle after you just get done maxing out your deadlift. (laughs) (laughs) Your hands are going to be shaky. You're going to be, going to be all over the place. It's going to be really hard, you know, or just do deadlifts with 135 till failure, then try the same experiment. Obviously they're, they're a little bit different, but one, you sort of get what I'm saying by that analogy and to think that Alja, who's always had some sort of cardio problem because wrestling is incredibly tiring. It just is. And we're not in three, we're not in three, three round fights anymore in five round fights. So you have to be a little bit more selective. Um, but I will say this, Aljo's gas tank is pretty solid for someone who is as big as he is for the weight class and fight style is volume, um, dynamic strikes, and a heavy wrestling attack. It's actually really good, but like you can't really say, hey, you have bad cardio if you try to sprint a marathon. Like The body's just not built to do that that well. So I think that's what they have to sort of understand. Unless they got like EPO in the Cutman kit, like, there's some shit you got to consider. Like, yeah. <laughs> The energy spend on that kind of that kind of game plan is significant. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Lastly, we have Gilbert Burns versus Kamzat Chimaev. Despite having very little footage to work with, the odds are stacked in favor of Chimaev. Because of that, I feel like whatever we say about this fight will be pure speculation because we know what Burns can do, but we don't know what Chimaev can do. Burns is really good at using jiu-jitsu to get back up, but he's also very small for welterweight. But he can crack and doesn't seem to be weak for the division. Chmaev is very big and also fights at 185. So Jason, how do you see this fight playing out? And what are things about Chmaev you're curious about? Uh, One, I love this fight. I do. And I, I do really like Burns. And I hate that he's been written off so easily but at the same time i'm so sort of enamored with the 
the the mythology that is that comes at at this point I, is he that good i mean and i watch it and he's always doing like really good shit when he took that he took down the one guy and he just like kept lifting him and bouncing him to the fence like like <laughs> it was so like it was nothing and then like who else did he fight the uh li jing lang and he just like just abused him and you're like holy shit and the first time around i didn't notice when he was picking him up and carrying him to the cage he was talking to dana white while he was doing that <laughs> but that's how much time and security he had in his hold it's amazing isn't it <laughs> It's just really, really impressive stuff. Um, and he's not doing that to a weak man. He's doing that to, to a, a legitimate UFC fighter. Burns has incredible jiu-jitsu. We know that. He's incredibly hard to hold down. And he, uh, he like you said, he can crack. He hits hard. So they, to think that, he has he has the potential to end a fight with his power, and he has the ability to end the flight, fight on the floor. To think that it would be that easy for uh, Tumayev with ten fights to just walk in there, I'd love to see see what he does in camp. I'd love to see if he's that good, and he very well may be. That's one of the most intriguing things about this. He's smooth for an, uh, a non-native striker. Like that's not his background. His background is wrestling. He has a smooth right hand that doesn't look easy, like he's even putting anything behind it. But he throws it like a piston, and then the second he, he lands it, some of these folks that he's been dropping with good chins, like, <laughs> you, you wonder if their chins were overrated. So everything he makes you second guess everything you're seeing, and I think maybe it might be because he's that good. You know? So for for Burns, he needs to he needs to do what he does. He needs to be uh, in your face and a little bit wild. Um, his cardio is better at um, at 170 pounds. Um, he's got a he's got a right hand. I guess that's the other difficulty, right? Shemaev can game plan and train for Burns because there's so much footage of him. How does Burns's camp train for Shemaev with? Not that you don't trust your man. It's more like, what are you going off of? There isn't that much footage, right? If you were coaching somebody against Chimaev, it's not that you don't believe in your fighter, but what do you look at? What are you looking at to create some kind of game plan? Because there isn't that much out there. So I think that has to be another difficulty that Burns has that Chimaev doesn't. Yeah, you wish he had a three-round war with with someone in the UFC that you could draw from, something that's relatively current, and then you could see that he fought back from adversity. This is what he does. This when he's in a bad position, you're like Mearshart. You only let really 17 fucking seconds, bro. Like that's all you could give us. Come on, man. Like you want him to have had a better performance than that, so that you can draw a conclusion. And it's tough to do that when you're running through individuals the way he does, or whenever you finish a fight in three minutes and 16 seconds, and like two minutes and 50 seconds of that is you ground and pounding another human being. <laughs> it's, it's like, how do you, like, there's not a whole lot of reads you're making, not a whole lot of analysis. You're just sort of watching it going, this dude might be really good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's all. That's, you know, where you go like, did Jing Lang have a bad day? Leeds had just knocked out Santiago Ponzinibbio, who was probably close to getting a title shot, right? Before his injuries. 
Lee had just knocked him out. And then this was his next fight. So everybody was actually hyped on Lee. Like maybe he beats this guy and now he's like in title implications. <laughs> it did not work out that way. Comes at the dream killer, I guess. <laughs> Everyone who gets a little bit of momentum or every, everyone thinks Mearshart is so, so like entertaining because he just bring, he brings it and he just gets, he gets slapped in 17 and you're like, oh no. Wow. All right. We got, let's run the, the UFC highlight videos again to kill some time and let's watch some Modelo commercials for fuck's sake. <laughs> All right. Let's hit the sponsors again. Um, like that's, that's what he brings. So, and he's only 10 fights in to put that in perspective. That's only 10 more professional fights than I have. (laughs) (laughs) That's not, that's that's the the first double digit number we have. That's not a whole lot. Normally when you have a hype train in the UFC, it's usually for a striker. And especially when the fights are so short, it's especially for a striker because they're knocking everybody out. Right. But. Even though Chimaev had that knockout, he is a grappler. So it's like rare to see a hype train based around a grappler. It's rare to see a grappler just finish people this quickly and this consistently and this dominantly. That's what's intriguing is the hype train is based around a grappler, except this time he's matched up against a world champion grappler who's pretty good at wrestling, but really good at submissions, submission defense, but also using submissions to create sweeps and creating opportunities to get up. Like against Damian Maya, he went for a leg lock because he was on the ground, but he was not going to actually attack that leg lock. He was only using the leg lock to get to a single leg and then get back up, right? So he knows how to use submissions, not just to use them to try to submit you, but to get back up. So that's the other intriguing part is a hype trained grappler against somebody who is bonafide we know is a good grappler, right? So what does that look like? And Burns has continued to improve his wrestling. Burns' wrestling is is no longer just I mean, it's a little spammy because he's he's a natural jujitsu player, but now he's hitting some some legit stuff against okay, some good singles, some good transitions where he's not just kind of hanging and grabbing. Um he's getting he's getting much better at finishing shots against the cage with legitimate wrestling, as opposed to just, like I said, just pooling and falling like shit jujitsu style takedowns. Um, and, and with that, he's able to control better where, where the fight is taking place while on the mat. So and another thing that, that throws me off is I know a, a good deal about rest, amateur wrestling on the international scene almost to the point where it's almost odd calling it amateur wrestling because there's nothing higher than that, but into the highest level. But how good is, is Swedish wrestling? Cause comes that makes it look really, really good. And without the body of work to pull from without the established cage time and seeing, seeing him go into deep waters and really have to work for a win. It's just, it's, it's tough to really know can't really gauge it whereas you think like you said we can we can it's not hard to get a beat on gilbert burns because there's a large body of work out there and we know what he's capable of we don't have that same data set for uh for Kamza. just don't i think burns isn't really gonna shoot for takedowns i think burns is probably more confident that he's a better striker than chimaev and is just gonna try to 
stand with them. And I think that might actually work against him because that might be when Chimaev takes him down. If, if the hype train is real and we know Usman can take a punch and he got sat down by Gilbert Burns. Yeah, what does it look like if Chimaev gets cracked? Does he even have a chin? We don't even know if he has a chin. No. And I, I, it took me like 14 minutes to watch all the UFC footage on him. <laughs> That's all that's really available. But I, I, I think it's really, really good matchmaking. I'm always hard on the UFC with their matchmaking. I think this is good matchmaking. It's a good test. Um, Burns at 20 and 4 and comes in at 10 and 0. You would think that uh, he's only 10 fights into a career, but I think it's a fight that you want, if you want to see where he truly is as a legitimate mixed martial artist in the UFC's 170 pound division, this is the fight to do so. This is it. And then if he, if he comes out of this after, if he best burns and he does it with relative ease, even if it's really competitive, you realize that he can hang in there with, I mean, MMA math being what it is, but this is a, this is a fighter who was able to drop Usman and able to beat Stephen Thompson. Uh, Wonder Boy is always a tough nut to crack. So, yeah, we'll see. I guess that's what makes this fight exciting is after that fight, we'll know if Chimaev is the truth or not. Gilbert Burns will show us. Yeah, I, I think he will. And Gilbert Burns at 170 pounds seems to bring the best out of a lot of the, the people he fights. You know? And if they don't, they'll fold. So. When I say from a matchmaking perspective, I think this tells us what Kamzat's got. He either has like otherworldly talent that's, what do they say, cream will rise to the top or whatever whatever metaphor you want to throw in there. Um, or like, is he grizzled enough if he's pushed to be able to push through some adversity against someone who can either put your lights out or choke you out and burns? So these are these are questions that'll get answered, and these are questions that I'm really interested in seeing unfold. Cool. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week to talk about the results. If you like what Jason and I do, make sure to support us on Patreon. See you next week. See you, folks.